The Lord be with you. Welcome back to Home Worship this week. If you haven't yet had a chance to go through the liturgy, pause the video, head over to wyckoffreformed.org slash home hyphen worship. Work through the liturgy there for April 5th and then come back and join us. This is the final sermon in this series on leaving Egypt. As we've looked at the story of Israel's exodus and how they're coming out of slavery through the wilderness to the promised land offers something of a roadmap for our own journeys of spiritual transformation. It offers signposts of where we are, where we're going, and what to expect along the way. I hope these sermons have been as much of a blessing to you as they have been to me. I've come to see myself more clearly and how I am and function a little bit these last six weeks, and also been able to take some steps out into what I think God is calling me to. I hope it's been as meaningful for you. I hope, though, that you didn't come into this series expecting a seven weeks to freedom sort of thing. I don't believe transformation happens that quickly for most of us. Even the Apostle Paul spoke about a lifelong struggle with sin in his life. This season, though, has been long enough, I hope, for you to begin to identify some places where you're stuck, where you're enslaved, for you to hear the voice of God calling you out into freedom and abundant life, and to commit yourself to that journey. As we come to the end of the book of Exodus today, as we're sent off on the rest of our journey of life, I want to invite you to do whatever you need to do to listen well, to these words from the book that burns, but is never burned up. Let's pray. Lord, it's in your light that we see light. It's in your truth that we find freedom and in your way that we find peace. So come, O Lord, shine upon us now by your spirit that we may see you more clearly and follow more faithfully. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Moses did everything exactly as the Lord had commanded him. In the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the dwelling for the Lord was set up. Moses set up the dwelling. He laid out its bases, he set up its boards, inserted its bars, and raised up its posts. He spread the tent out over the dwelling, and he put the covering of the tent over it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the covenant document and placed it inside the ark. He put the poles on the ark and set up the cover on top of the ark. He brought the ark into the dwelling. He set up the veil as a screen to hide from view the ark containing the covenant, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He placed the table in the meeting tent on the north side of the dwelling, outside the veil. He set the bread in its proper place on the table in the Lord's presence, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the meeting tent opposite the table on the south side of the dwelling, he set up the lamps in the Lord's presence, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the gold altar in the meeting tent 
in front of the veil, he burned sweet-smelling incense on it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He also set up the screen at the entrance of the dwelling. He placed the altar for entirely burned offerings at the outside of the meeting tent dwelling. He offered the entirely burned offering and the grain offering on it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the wash basin between the meeting tent and the altar and put water in it for washing. Moses, Aaron, and his sons used it to wash their hands and their feet. And whenever they went into the meeting tent, and whenever they appeared, approached the altar, they washed themselves, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set up the courtyard around the dwelling and the altar, and he hung up the screen at the courtyard's gate. When Moses had finished all the work, the cloud covering the meeting tent and the Lord's glorious presence filled the dwelling. Moses couldn't enter the meeting tent because the cloud had settled on it and the Lord's glorious presence filled the dwelling. Whenever the cloud rose from the dwelling, the Israelites would set out on their journeys. But if the cloud didn't rise, then they didn't set out until the day it rose. The Lord's cloud stayed over the dwelling during the day with lightning in it at night, clearly visible to the whole household of Israel at every stage of their journey. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Moses did everything exactly as the Lord commanded him. Exactly as the Lord commanded him. Exactly as the Lord had commanded him. And in this story, there's a long refrain, a detailed list of everything that Moses did. It's quite a lot. I actually spared you from the whole list because if you read the book of Exodus, you'll see that all of Exodus 34, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and the beginning of chapter 40 contain God's instructions for how to build the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, how to do all this other stuff, the sacrifices, the priesthood, and how Israel went about then building these things over the course of months. And now finally here, Moses erects all of it and brings that work to completion. Seems complicated, doesn't it? I mean, why did they really need to do all of this stuff? God comes off as quite particular, doesn't he? Needs to have things just the right way. Needs things done correctly. I mean, can't God just be there with the people? Is God really this picky? Does God have a flair for the dramatic, maybe? Why all of this stuff? Why is it needed? While we often view the worship practices of Israel as a whole rigmarole for an oddly particular and temperamental God, all of these complex pieces are actually in place to protect Israel. Last week, you may remember the story of the golden calf, that no more than a few weeks into this new covenant with the Lord, God's holy, special, chosen people build an idol and bow down to worship to it. If you would have kept reading in that story about where after we left off, you'd have seen God choose mercy and not destroy the people 
But you would have also heard God say this in chapter 33, that God wasn't going to join Israel in the rest of the journey to the promised land. God would keep the promise. God would get them there, but they'd be led by a messenger, an angel of God, because God said, you're a stubborn people. You just keep turning away from me. And if I came with you, I'd end up destroying you all along the way. And this isn't because God just has a raging temper and any little thing will set God off. It's because God is holy, absolutely and completely holy. And sin cannot survive in God's holiness. If the two were to mix, it would have catastrophic results for the people of God. Have you ever seen maybe sodium when it's dropped into water? A pure chunk of sodium as it drops into water? If you've never seen it, pause this video, go on YouTube, search for it because it's crazy, okay? I'll see you in a minute. It's crazy, isn't it? It's not like oil and water that just don't mix. It's explosive. And the same thing would happen if God made the journey with the people. Right in their midst, their sin would explode in God's presence or something like that would happen. And so God says, I can't. For your sake, I can't go with you. I'll still get you there, but I can't come. I don't know what you would expect the people to do with that, but they respond with deep sadness and mourning. Moses begs God, and because of the prayers and pleas of the people, God again changes God's mind. But there are some safety measures that are put in place. And that's where we receive all of these worship practices of Israel. The tabernacle, the priesthood, the system of sacrifices, all are given to Israel not to appease a picky God prone to temper tantrums, but to protect the people and to allow them to be with this God. All of these things are given to mediate God's presence, to stand between Israel and God and allow them to dwell together safely. We know a little bit about that right now, don't we? All the talk about PPE, personal protective equipment, nitrile gloves, N95 masks, surgical gowns, all the stuff desperately needed right now by frontline healthcare workers to keep themselves safe as they work and serve in the presence of this coronavirus pandemic. But maybe you know about it at home too. We got pizza earlier this week and I went to pick it up and struck up a conversation from 15 feet away with another woman who was there. And she said, you know, my kids have been fine. If I was stuck at home alone with them, this would be a breeze. It's my husband who's driving me crazy. Maybe you know a little something about being stuck together in close proximity with others for a little too long and have needed to set up guidelines, practices, separate spaces to keep the peace. The worship practices of Israel are sort of like that. All these things are put in place so that God can come and dwell with the people in order to lead them home.
All of it, all these very particular, very exact things are put into place so that God can come and dwell with the people in order to lead them home. What do you think about that? Why don't you pause the video for a couple minutes? If you're alone, reflect, maybe journal on that. If you're with some other people, talk about it. Have you ever thought about this like this? How does it make sense? What are you still curious about? I'll see you in a minute. Israel's worship practices are given so that God can come dwell with the people and lead them home. And this shouldn't really surprise us because our God is always a God who is coming to us. A God of presence. A God who makes God's self known. Our God is never content to just peace out, but is always showing up among us. The scriptures read like a catalog of all the places where God shows up and what happens when God does. And that reaches its climax with the incarnation, with the moment when our God doesn't just come and show up among us, but becomes one with us, one of us at Christmas, when God takes on flesh in Jesus Christ to live our life with us to be as close as God could possibly be. Well, today is another celebration of God's coming to us, Palm Sunday. It's the day we remember Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem in the week when he was crucified. We marked that earlier in the liturgy as we remember Jesus entering the city, riding on a donkey, people waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. On this day, Jesus came one final time to the people, even knowing all that was going to happen in the days to come, how he'd be arrested, tortured, and executed on the cross. Still, he came to be with us. He comes, he dies on that cross in order to, again, do everything that was needed to be even more present with us than ever before. And as Jesus dies on that cross, something curious and strange happens. As Matthew tells the story in Matthew's Gospel, we see that in the moment Jesus dies, the veil in the temple is torn from top to bottom. The veil, the veil we just read about Moses setting up in the original tabernacle, the veil that separates the holy of holies from the holy place, the veil that separated the place where God alone dwelled and the space where the priests were allowed to gather to serve, that very veil that kept the people of God and God separate and safe, that veil ripped from top to bottom. And you want to know why? Because it wasn't needed anymore. Because all the things we read about back in Exodus 40 that mediated God's presence with Israel have now been eclipsed by our one true mediator, Jesus Christ. 
The protective barrier set up to keep us safe is removed. And as it is, Jesus takes all of these consequences into himself. God and Jesus takes the catastrophic and explosive consequences of sin and God's holiness into God's self. And Jesus dies. And as he takes that destruction in, he takes it away from us. And we find ourselves Not just saved, but also healed and restored and forgiven. By his one perfect sacrifice, we are washed clean and the veil is torn. And we now, who find our lives in Jesus Christ, find ourselves able to stand in God's very presence without fear. Pause the video again to think about that by yourself or speak of it with others. Reflect together. What does it mean for you that the veil is torn? Where has Jesus been personally present with you in the last couple weeks? Pause and reflect on that. I'll see you in a minute. So, where are we now? I mean, what signpost is this supposed to be this week? Are we in the promised land finally? I mean, it's the end of the series, isn't it? Have we made it? How does the promised land even fit into this whole metaphor we've been using in Lent? I mean, slavery makes sense. The wilderness we understand, but where is the promised land? Well, in some ways, we're already there. We just talked about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross in which he triumphed over sin and evil and the powers of death forever. We've been set free by his work on our behalf and with the Holy Spirit in our lungs, we are free indeed, made new and made whole in Jesus. And yet I doubt it feels to you as though we've arrived. We continue to struggle to turn back toward Egypt, to get caught turning back to idols of our old control strategies. We still go through periods of spiritual dryness that feel an awful lot like desert. We find in ourselves ever deeper layers of our own sin and rebellion from which we need to turn and head off across the Red Sea. In really important ways, We have both already arrived in the promised land and we continue to make our journey through the wilderness. As we continue to make that journey, we need to remember that God continues to come and dwell with us in order to lead us home. That God continues to do what God did with Israel, guiding them each leg of the journey with them every step of the way. And though the worship practices of Israel that we found earlier in Exodus 40 have been eclipsed now by Jesus, it continues to be in the act and in the practices of worship that God works to lead us home. God doesn't still lead us by a pillar of fire. But it's in the work of worship 
that our compasses are set in order that we might find our way home. As we're invited into worship by words of scripture each week, we remember that our whole lives are meant to be lived as expressions of worship, that we're created to worship God and God only. As we seek renewal and confess our sin, we learn to trust in God's grace and to step out into new and holy lives, leaving slavery behind. As we give our gifts to God, we remember and learn of all the generosity that God has used in creating the world and in relating to us. And we too learn to live lives of generosity. As we study the scriptures together, we seek to know God more fully, that we might follow more faithfully. As we pray together, we learn to trust in God for all that we need in life. And as we're sent out, we're given the opportunity, the privilege, to shine God's light into a world filled with darkness. God continues to gather us in worship in order to shape us into the kinds of people who can follow through the wilderness and one day arrive fully in God's promised land. When Jesus comes again, when we're gathered into that kingdom, and when all is made well, when we are brought into the wide open countryside of salvation for which we have been desperately searching. And it's in worship, in the whole of our worship, where God comes to lead us home. That's why I'm so glad you've been joining us for home worship in this season. That you're not just clicking on something you can watch and check off the box, but that you're entering in with us in order to calibrate your compasses together for the promised land. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.